know complex math that I cannot do. You know scientific things that I do not know. And you do formulas and all that kind of stuff. I think highly of your intellectual capabilities and I am of the conviction that your intellectual capabilities should be directed into understanding God's word, understanding theology, life in light of who God claims himself to be in scripture. And so I do try to shoot high because I want you to really lean in. Um, I always have said this phrase and I stole it from someone and I can't remember who. If you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get gold. And so we should not be raking around God's word. We ought to be digging. And so I'm prefacing that because we're going to get into some stuff. I think if you understand this today, it's, it's game changer kind of stuff. So without further ado, I want to get into uh, our passage for this morning. And that is in the book of Acts chapter 2. Book of Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 21. Acts chapter 2, sword drill. When you're there, say amen. 22. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. All right. Acts chapter 2. If you're looking for that, uh, that's right after the Gospel of John where we were last night. Okay? Acts chapter 2. And this is God's Word. Again, we're taking the whole not the whole, whole passage, but we're taking a bigger chunk of this text. So let's read this together. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And it and divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now you would take my five loaves and two fish and feed your people. I pray that you would help us to be transformed as we sit under your word. That we would expect this time to be profoundly life-changing. Because we're sitting under your word and your spirit is at work. So we pray that we would be different people as we walk away from this time. We pray that you'd, you'd exalt Jesus. Help me, Lord. Uh, help me to serve your people well. We pray that you would give us grace in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So every year at Christmas, my generous mom and dad load my kids up with tons of gifts. I mean, they get them all kinds of gifts and toys. But every year, we wind up in the same situation. My, my parents, they buy a bunch of toys that require AA batteries. But all they have in the house are AAA batteries. It happens every year. And every year I say to my mom, Mom, why do you only have AAA batteries? And she's like, because they was on sale. All right? I, was, I see that logic. But it's not helping me right now. So here I am. I got kids. They're crying. Daddy, Daddy, can you get it working? Daddy, Daddy, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I'm sitting here. I'm looking at a toy that requires AA batteries. But all I have are these little dumb AAA batteries. And so every time, every year, I, I look at it and I say, man, I'm frustrated at first. But then I start to come up with ideas. I'm like, maybe I could get those AAA batteries to get this thing to work. Every year I do it. I fool around with it. I try to jam them in there. I try to jimmy rig them. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Now, you may think I'm crazy. And you would be right. But, <laughs> but. Knowing you uh, are not that far off from being like me, I know this. You may not try to get AA toys to run off of AAA batteries, but you are like me in that you are tempted to use insufficient power sources to try and power the things in your life that were only meant to run by spiritual power. You try to have AA relationships with AAA power. You try to run them. With AAA power. You try to have AA ministries running them off of AAA power. You try to, one day you will get jobs and, and you will try to have a AA job off of AAA power. Because here's the deal. Every single solitary thing that we have in our lives is a gift from God. It's a gift. You have air in your lungs. It's a gift from God. You have opportunities for education. It's a gift from God. You have friendships. You you have more things in your life than you can really calculate. They're all gifts from God. And every single gift that God has given you was meant to be operated through spiritual power. But we were often found trying to live off of lesser power sources. We try to run off of intellectual power. But soon we realize we're not smart enough to get our lives to flourish like they were meant to based upon how smart we are. 
We try to operate our lives off of willpower. But sooner or later, we realize we're not dedicated enough to get our lives to flourish like they were meant to flourish. We try to operate off of financial power, thinking that we can spend our way into the kind of flourishing that only God's Spirit can provide. We're talking about building cross-cultural community, y'all. And what I'm proposing to you is that what it takes to build cross-cultural community is no different from what it takes to do anything in life as a Christian, as a human being. And that is, you need the spiritual power of God if you are to live up into this beautiful vision that Jesus laid out last night. All right? You need the spiritual power of God for your relationships. You need the spiritual power of God to operate in your vocation. You need the spiritual power of God. And it's only a delusion that makes you think that you can handle things on your own. It's, de- it's a delusion to think that you're smart enough or that you have enough determination to really, to really live up into this vision. That's one of the key components that we have to understand today. This is about the, the power required for building cross-cultural community. So this morning in our text, what I want us to give our attention to are two points where we see that we need to embrace the intensive work of the Spirit, and we need to embrace the extensive work of the Spirit. Those are our two points. We need to embrace the intensive work of the Spirit, what He does on the inside of a person, and we need to embrace the extensive work of the Spirit. That is what God is doing in the world through His people, the calling that He has for us. So let's look at our first point where we see the intensive work of the Spirit. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, look at verse 1, because it sets the context for us. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrives. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of you have not really had time or teaching on, on Pentecost, because it's one of those things that our, our little corner of the Christian faith doesn't really give as much attention to. But this is, this is money. This is so critical that you understand what's going on here. Let me tell you a little bit about Pentecost, all right? Pentecost was an annual celebration in Israel. And during this annual celebration, they would take some of the first fruits of their harvest. So some of the first of uh, what they planted would start to crop up and bear fruit, all right? The grain or the wheat or whatever, right? It was also called the Feast of Weeks. And they would get the, the first bunch of it. And they would come into the temple. And they would do what is called a wave offering. They would wave it before the Lord. And they would say, we believe that this is just the beginning of a greater harvest to come. We trust, Lord, that you are going to bring an even greater harvest. Here's the first fruits of it. At Pentecost, we celebrate it. And we believe that you're going to bring in the rest of the harvest. But one of the other things uh, surrounding Pentecost was Pentecost was associated with the giving of the law by Moses. Now check it out. If you're not familiar, here's the basic sketch of this, right? God's people, Israel, are in slavery in Egypt. God says, I'm going to rescue them. He rescues them. He brings them out. They're in freedom now. But then the question is, now what? What are we going to do? And God says, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. 
I'm going to give you the organizing principle of my community. I'm going to tell you the kind of people you're supposed to be. I'm going to tell you the kind of lives you're supposed to live. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what kind of community you're supposed to be. So he calls Moses and says, come on up on Mount Sinai and meet with me. And I'm going to give you the organizing principles of this community. And then he sends him back down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Decalogue. All right? This tells them how their community is supposed to be ordered, what kind of people they're supposed to be. All right? So do you see that the mention of Pentecost is meant to, is meant to draw our attention to something? What we're about to see here is that one greater than Moses has just ascended to the Father. And instead of sending the law back down, he sends down his spirit to be the organizing principle of God's community. He sends down his spirit to be the transforming agent, to tell us what kind of people we're supposed to be, to show us what kind of community we're supposed to be, to show us what kind of lives we're supposed to live. And not only this, but the result of God's people living in God's way, in God's world, for God's purposes, under the rule of God's spirit, it's in this context that you see the first fruits of a harvest that is to come in greater measure down the road. Do you see this? This is Pentecostal uh, imagery here. God's people filled with God's spirit. And, and now they're starting to see the first fruits of this harvest. And look at the first fruits. Look at all the, the people group's name. It's not on accident that the author tells you all of the different regions that these people were from, their cultural backgrounds. He shows you where they're from. He shows all different kinds of people. This is the first fruits of a greater harvest. They start with 120 people in the room at Pentecost, in the upper room, all right? 120 people waiting for God's power to arrive. And on that day, 3,000 people come to faith, all right? 3,000 people come to faith through the transforming ministry of the Spirit. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, Acts 1-8, you're going to be my witnesses, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. All right? It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you that you will receive power to be my witnesses. And we see that vision unfolding here, right? But how does it actually take place? Verse 4. Verse 4 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is an intensive work of the Spirit going on in their lives. Before they ever get out into this ministry, there is an intensive work of the Spirit going on in their lives. But we need to think more deeply about this intensive work. All right? We need to think more deeply about this intensive work of the Spirit. There is a, an extremely important connection for you to make here. I'm going to propose to you that this is one of the most important concepts that you could ever understand in your Christian life. And I don't think that's too bold a statement. I think this, what I'm about to say, is one of the most important things you can understand for your Christian life. You may or may not know that the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke were originally one book. And it was so long, written by Dr. Luke, and it was so long that you couldn't put it all on one scroll. So it was broken up into two scrolls, known as Luke-Acts, all right? So the book of Acts is the continuation of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus. So, in, in the Gospel of Luke, he tells about what Jesus has done. He's writing to this dude named Theophilus, lover of God. This is what his name means. He could be a seeker. He could be an inquirer about who Jesus is, all right? God-fearer. Generally spiritual, but not exactly sure about Jesus yet. 
So he says, I'm going to tell you all about what Jesus did. All right? And then in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, in my first book, Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the book of Acts is the story of all Jesus continued to do and teach through his people. So Luke Acts is intimately related. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we need to go back into the Gospel of Luke to appreciate that this is part of a larger trajectory. This is, this is transformative. And this is what I want you to understand. Luke's Gospel portrays Jesus as a man of the Spirit. Luke's Gospel portrays Jesus as a man of the Spirit. I'm going somewhere. So this is the first part. Check it out. The physical body of Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended on him like a dove and rested on him at his baptism. Luke tells us that he was full of the Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Luke tells us that after Jesus defeated the temptation of Satan, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Luke tells us that in Jesus' first sermon, he stands in the synagogue and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He takes the scroll of Isaiah 61 when he walks into church one day. He quotes Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus says, that's fulfilled in me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So by his own words, Jesus Christ was above all a man of the spirit. And his ministry was a partnership with the Holy Spirit when he healed the sick, when he exercised demons, when he showed mercy, when he cleansed lepers, when he resisted temptation, when he prayed to the Father, when he worshipped God, when he befriended sinners, when he sacrificed his life and when he rose from the dead. Jesus was a man of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, Jesus was everything that a human being was always meant to be. He was everything that a human being was always meant to be. What we see here in, in a biblical version of spirituality is that it has Jesus at the center. Okay? There are lots of people these days who talk about being spiritual, not religious. And here's the deal. As a Christian, what's distinctive about our spirituality is that it finds Jesus at the center. It's not, it's not vague. It's very clearly defined. And so one of the interesting things that will help you to understand how to dialogue with your friends who talk about being spiritual, not religious, is to ask honest questions about how they define their spirituality and where they get that from. And if they return the question, you say, well, my spirituality is, is aiming at this, Jesus as the center of it, right? This is, Jesus is a man of the spirit, which means he shapes our spirituality. And here's the deal. This is where the promise of the spirit becomes so profound for us. Because when Jesus sends his spirit to be among his people and within his people, the Holy Spirit is coming into your life like you came into your dorm room with all of the luggage that he acquired in those 33 years of life with Jesus. 
You came to your dorm room, right? You come, it probably looks like a, a cement box. I don't know, that's what mine looked like in college. It looked like a cement box. And when I came in there, I said, oh man, I need to dress this thing up. I'm gonna put my posters on the wall. I'm gonna put my pillows on the bed and my comforter and I, I'm gonna put my clothes in the closet. You come in and you make the place your own. Well, what you have to understand is that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when you trust in Jesus and he gives you his spirit, the spirit comes moving in with all of the luggage of those 33 years of the moral beauty of Jesus Christ. That's when he's coming. He moves into your life and he says, let's put up some righteousness in here. Let's put up some mercy and some grace. Let's put up some friending of sinners in here. Let, let's put, in, put up some uh, love for those who are, who are struggling to make ends meet financially. Let's, let's renovate this place. He's coming to bring into your life the fullness of those 33 years of Jesus. He's not just randomly zapping you to make you a better person. It's not about making you a better person. It's about making you a Jesus person. This is not just about making you a little bit cleaned up morally. All right? It's not about you turning over a new leaf. It's not about you getting a tune-up. You need more than that, and so do I. And that's why the Spirit comes to bring the life of Jesus into your life. His ministry, as we said last night, is to clone the heart of Jesus within you. And what the Spirit wants to do is he wants to strike you with the beauty of Jesus. He wants to strike you with the love and grace of Jesus. He wants, it's like a metallurgist or a sculptor through many strokes on whatever that material is. By many strokes, he, 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 he initially begins to chip away big chunks, but then he begins to just refine and make this thing into what it was meant to be. There was a, a story about Michelangelo when he was doing his work of, sculpt, of sculpting, all right? And someone came up to him and said, how do you turn this block of marble into something so amazing like, like you do? And he said, before I ever start, I see the image. And I chip away everything that is not that image. Friends, what the Spirit does is he comes to you as a block of jacked upness, and he chips away everything that is not Jesus. He chips away everything that is not conformed to his likeness. And yes, it can be painful. Yes, it, it's, it's going it's gonna, it's gonna to be hard. But it's going to be the best and most beautiful and most powerful thing that has ever happened to you. This is what the Spirit is coming to do. He wants, he wants to produce a radically new identity within you. The identity of Jesus is meant to flood our lives with his fullness. He wants us to have the same security in the Father's love that Jesus had. He wants us to have the same rootedness that Jesus had. Look, Jesus did not wind up living that morally beautiful life willy-nilly. It was in partnership with the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus lived that morally beautiful and ethically righteous life. You need to connect what you see in the life of Jesus on the pages of the Gospels with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. That's how he lived. Jesus lived the life that he's calling us to live. God never 
calls you to do something that he was not willing to do first. Do you realize that? He calls you to make sacrifice. He went first. He calls you to serve others. He went first. He calls you to value and dignify people who aren't like you. He did that first. He calls you to love. He did it first. Do you see that? He, he calls you to die. He did it first. He calls you to rise up and live in the newness of life, resurrection power. He did it first. Everything that God wants to see in your life, he's already demonstrated Jesus as the example of how that is done and what that looks like. And the major thing that you have to appreciate about Pentecost is that the coming of the Spirit was as important as the coming of Jesus. Do you realize that? Pentecost was a one-time event, just like the cross. And here's why that's the case. The coming of the Spirit was as important as the coming of Jesus. And here's why. Old school theologian John Calvin. You may or may not have heard of him. Jean Calvin. Oui, bonjour. I will reveal my rebeto. John Calvin. That's all the French I know. You got it right there. And it's not even French. All right. John Calvin, he had this phrase. He said, without the ministry of the Spirit, the work of Christ is worthless to us. Without the ministry of the Spirit, all that Jesus did, all that Jesus was, is absolutely useless to us. Because the Spirit is the one who gets us connected to the riches of Christ. What good to me is an offshore account in the Bahamas with a billion dollars in it if I don't have the routing number? What good is it to me to have all this money in the bank if I don't have a teller to give me access? John Calvin is essentially saying that the spirit is the teller. He is the routing number that gets you connected to the riches of Jesus so that you can be, you can be a different kind of person. You can live a different kind of life. You can have different kinds of relationships. You have a different kind of power, a different kind of life. This is the intensive work of the spirit. He comes to remove everything in you that is not like Jesus and it comes to produce within you all the things that are lacking to make you like Jesus. It's a ministry of giving and taking. That's what the Spirit's doing. He's giving and taking. And sometimes when he's taken, it feels like death. But really, he's given life. And sometimes when he's given, it feels like death. But he's really given life. Whatever he's taken away are the things that are killing you. Your self-righteousness. Your pride, your need to be considered important based upon how well you perform. Everything that he's tearing from you, he's saying, I want to give you something so much better. I want to give you a righteousness not based upon how well you perform, but on how well Jesus performs. There are all different kinds of self-righteousness, y'all. Y'all realize that. I'm going to give you an example. I have time righteousness. When people are late, I say, ah... Oh, Sinners, if only they could be on time like me, right? Some of us have clothing righteousness. Ha, I got the latest brands. I got the latest styles. Of course, they don't wear the brands like I do. So whatever it is that you use to elevate yourself above others is a form of righteousness. One day, if you have kids, you, you'll wind up having parenting righteousness. Man, they just don't, they just don't, Watch out for their kids. They don't teach their kids right, all right, like I do, right? <laughs> because here's the deal. I realized one time 
how deep my parenting righteousness was. Because I realized that one of the reasons I snapped out on my kids so much was because they were revealing, they were exposing my lack of parenting righteousness. I needed them to be perceived as good. And so anytime they threatened that, I snapped down on it. You could have any different variation of righteousness. You could have cultural righteousness. Well, you know, our culture really does it right. Our culture, like theirs is weird. Like they're idiots. Like why would they do it like that? That's so dumb. Like why would they put the steering wheel on the right side of the car? That's so dumb. Like why would they drive on the other side of the road? Like, but that is a form of self-righteousness. And that is, not only does it, not only does it prohibit you from the, from the joy and the satisfaction of knowing yourself to be righteous in Christ, but it hinders cross-cultural relationships. The more self-righteousness we have, the less likely we are to connect with people who aren't like us. The less self-righteousness we have and the more Christ-righteousness we have, the more this beauty shows up in our lives and relationships. There's evidence. You don't have to prove it to anyone. The evidence is in your life and relationships. You see that coming out that way. That's the intensive work. Let's hit the extensive work of the Spirit right quick. All right? This is our second and final point. Look at verse 4. Look at what happens in this text. The Spirit is poured out and God's new community is empowered to communicate the mighty works of God. You see that? He gives His people the grace of translational power. Now, don't get lost in the weeds. Many people want to understand, oh, is this speaking in tongues, like speaking in different languages, right? Is that still today and all this kind of stuff? And people, there's a place for having those debates in, among Christians. But I want you to get up to the 30,000 foot level and just see at the very least what we see happening in this passage is God's people are empowered by God's spirit to translate God's message for those who do not yet know him from all different walks of life. They're given a translational power. They're able to make sense of what God has done in Jesus for people who have not yet come to know that message. Do you see that? There's a translational power he provides. And the big picture is this. Don't forget, when the Spirit comes, the disciples are enabled to translate the story of Jesus to surrounding cultures. What did they say? Check this out. Check this out. We hear them proclaiming, what's the text say? Verse 4. What's it say? We hear them proclaiming five steps to a new me. Wait, that's not what that says here. We hear them proclaiming how to turn over a new leaf. Wait, no, that's not what it says. Man, my eyes are really messing up here. We hear them declaring the mighty works of God. All right? Sorry. This is not a moral fix. Christianity is not what everyone wants to reduce it to. A manageable set of steps where you can just mechanically go through the motions and out comes your manufactured godly life. That's not how this works. God doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. God does not want a part of you. He wants all of you. I want all of you. Ha! He wants that. 
That's what he wants. He doesn't want a piece of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. And when he becomes your life, your joy is complete. You are satisfied in him. You're living the life that you were always meant to live with the resources you were always meant to have. You no longer live like a pauper. You live like, like a child of God. This is a different way of living. But here's the deal. You need to understand what the mighty works of God are in context. We hear them declaring the mighty works of God. What were the mighty works of God? The mighty work of God was this. He lives. He lives. What, what, what explanation do we have for what unfolds in the book of Acts? He lives. Jesus lives. He rose from the dead. What explanation do we have for how the people were boldly proclaiming the message of the gospel? Because he lives. What explanation do we have for how they radically shared their stuff to make sure no one had any physical needs and no one had such abundance that they weren't willing to share with others? Because he lives. What made them willing to get into community with people who were radically different than they were? They recognized that Jesus lives. And the only thing that's going to change you is a, a rock-solid conviction in the resurrection of Jesus. He lives. We're not just playing games here. We're playing for keeps. This is not just business as usual. This is not just another religious opportunity out of the many. I, lo I, love, I love what you see here in this text. In verse 9, the disciples... The disciples say something. Look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praised. Wait, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry. <laughs> 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You know what's interesting? In verse 9, I think it's, it's pretty instructive for us uh, that the disciples don't say, Oh, I know you have your Parthian truth. But for us, you know, we kind of like Jesus. He's our, he's our way. I'm not trying to impose on you, Medes. You know, I know you have your Mede truth, and, but we like Jesus. <laughs> no, they don't say that. They say, this man got up out the grave. Y'all better recognize, right? He, he got out the grave. He's the only one who could taste death and then shake it off. Nobody else has done what he has done. God has vindicated Jesus. The resurrection shows you that his death on the cross was not a death because of his own sins, but because of him bearing the sins of others. Check it out. When you go into the store and you pay for something, what do they ask you after you finish the transaction? They say what? Do you want a? A receipt. What's a receipt? It proves that you have paid the bill. And if you try to walk out that store and someone tries to stop you from taking what you already paid for, you can be like, uh-uh, I got the receipt. The receipt. The resurrection is the receipt that God's payment for sin in Jesus Christ was completed. And no one else can ask you for the payment. It's the vindication of Jesus as a substitute sufferer. Not because of his own sins, but because of ours. The resurrection is also a, a picture for us 
of our future. That one day we too will rise from the dead. Through faith in Christ. What is true of Jesus becomes true of me. This is what is known as union with Christ. And when you're united to Christ, you're united to your brothers and sisters. You become one. This is what union with Christ is. If Bill Gates went downtown to Birmingham, downtown, and he found someone, a young woman who was poor, and she was going through rough times, and she was in bad shape. If Bill Gates came to that woman and dropped down on one knee, and he put a ring on it, all right, what would happen to her? (laughs) Her poverty would be swallowed up in his wealth. Everything would change for her. He has such wealth that her poverty would be swallowed up in his wealth. Everything that is his becomes hers. And everything that is hers becomes his. That's what union with Christ is about. When you are united to Christ by faith, everything that is his becomes yours. His peace, his grace, his love, his forgiveness, his patience, his covenant. Everything that's his becomes Yours and everything that's yours, your brokenness, your sin, your selfishness, your ugliness, your waywardness. He takes that up into himself and he swallows up your sin and your loss and your debt in himself. And he changes your life. When he does that and pours out his spirit, this this produces transformation in your life. You no longer get to call the shots in your own life. You no longer get to call the shots in your own life. I'm going to tell you something. Autonomy, being a law unto yourself, is crazy. It's crazy, y'all. It's like my kids saying, Daddy, I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, you, you can't even make it off the block. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. And anytime you want to call your own shots, you have to actually ask the question, which you... Your 10-year-old you, your 10-year-old you was an idiot, and you readily acknowledge that. But guess what? When you're 25, you're going to be looking back at your 18-year-old you and saying they were an idiot. And when you're 35, you're going to look back at your 25-year-old self and say, that person was an idiot. And when you're 55 and you look back at your 35-year-old self, you're going to say that person was an idiot. At what point in that journey do you not become an idiot? So why would you ever trust any version of yourself to run your own life? It doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. Only God is qualified to tell you where you come from, what you were made for, and how that transforms right now. And this is especially important when it comes to your relationships. What you were meant for, how you were meant to relate to other people. Do you understand that Acts 2 is a direct reversal of what happened in the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11. In the Tower of Babel, everyone came together. They were united for wicked purposes. They were united for the purposes of self-righteousness. We're going to build a tower to the heavens, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God's like, no, you're not. And what he does is he judges them by scattering them with different languages. They can no longer communicate to one another. All right? Because they were trying to get together. They were trying to unify for evil purposes. But what happens is after Jesus provides atonement for sin. And he pours out his spirit. 
He now wants to reunite the scattered peoples of the world under holy purposes and righteous purposes. He's undoing everything that happened at Babel. That judgment has been undone. The reality is that here in Alabama, coming to a close, here in Alabama, there are all different kinds of subcultures that need gospel translation. All right? There are all kinds of different subcultures. Like when you think, when you think of what this passage is telling you to do, it's telling you that you need to rely upon the power of the Spirit to help you navigate relationships with people who aren't like you. So that you can bring the gospel into their lives and so that you can hear the gospel, receive the gospel from them. But here's the thing. Not only does the Spirit provide translational power, the Spirit does the work in your heart to give you the kind of love that provides staying power for you to engage in those kinds of relationships that cost you, that make you stretch, that, ha- that, that force you to adjust. My, no one, I told you guys last night, no one has, I've, I, there's no other relationship that has required me to change as much as my relationship with my wife. I am a different person in all the best kind of ways because this is being recorded. Alright? <laughs> no, seriously, I'm a better person. I'm a different person because of my wife and my life. But there have been some times where I'm just like, no! No! I want bacon every morning! <laughs> She's like, you will die by the time you're 30. <laughs> okay. I want to do things my way. I got that Frank Sinatra theology. I did it my way. Y'all too young for that. Y'all don't know about that. <laughs> but real relationships, they grate you. I'm, I'm suggesting to you that relationship with God is going to grate you, particularly on the cross-cultural. You no longer have permission to call the shots in your life or you only spend time and build relationships with people who are like you. The spirit, what we're going to see later this afternoon is that the Spirit is leading His people into very different kinds of encounters and very different kinds of relationships. It's not an issue of what you're comfortable with. It's an issue of what God is calling you to. Comfort's nice. Nothing wrong with being comfortable. But comfort above Christ is a problem. Comfort above God's calling is a problem. So that's what we want to deal with. All right? We need God's power. We need the spiritual power of God to live this out, to translate it for the different people. Listen, your campus has people from all over the world. Your, your campus has people from all over the country, from all different walks of life. What if RUF Alabama became known as a beautiful place of welcome? A beautiful place where people were all invited in to hear the message of God's transforming grace. And we're all learning how to live in a microcosm the way that the kingdom will ultimately be. You know, this is just dress rehearsal, right, for eternity. And you know what eternity is going to look like? Every tongue, every tribe, every nation gathered around the Lamb, worshiping Him. The native language of glory is not English. It's not. That's Revelation 5, 9. All right? That's the final picture. That's the top of the puzzle box. 
But we need God's power to help us to live into that right now, to anticipate it. So let's pray that he helps us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Your spirit is powerful, able to change anyone. And so we ask that you would do that transforming work in our lives. Help us to be a translational community. I pray that the next time I get to see RUF Alabama, there is evidence of the Spirit's ministry in their lives and relationships as they broaden out to understand your love as they extend love to people not like them. I thank you for the the evidence of your grace already at work in that way here. And I pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, Help them to be faithful and persevering on in this beautiful vision. But most of all, Father, I pray that you help them not to do this on their own strength. Not to rely upon all of the answers or having all of the determination and having all of the resources to accomplish it. Help them to trust your spirit as the most significant power at their disposal to live into this beautiful vision. Give them that grace and increase their joy as they live into this for your glory. I pray your grace over them and an enjoyable afternoon for them in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, thanks, Sheldon. All right, y'all sit for a second.